1: have uh, Bridget be here. Uh, I met her uh, earlier this year at UCLA at a retirement uh, event for her mentor at UCLA, who was the famed historian, Ivan Behrend, who just retired this year. Uh, her first book is this, and she'll talk about it, so I won't say any more. But. Uh, I do want to emphasize that she's working on two very interesting new projects. One on labor migrations from Yugoslavia to Western Europe uh, during the Cold War period and the relationship of those migrants to Yugoslavia. And another on the implications for the city, and the shape of the city, and the reformation of the city of Rijeka, which was in the Austro Hungarian Empire, then was in Italy, then after World War II was made part of Yugoslavia, and what happened to the ethnic Italians there. Um, and that's a very interesting uh, project as well. Um, what happened from 1945 until the 50s when the, for the shape of the city. Um, Bridget is uh, in the history department, and she told me that you're supposed to say the University of British Columbia in Okanagan. Oh, so Which is the same thing, but... Uh, And And there she's the Director of Urban Studies, which is an interdisciplinary uh, institute uh, as well as in the History Department. And uh, she, uh, Ivan Varen, who was her professor, told me she was one, he was 85 when he retired uh, and had a very long and very distinguished career that she was one of his very favorite and very best students. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to hearing her talk.
0: Thank you very much, um, and thank you so much for inviting me <laughs> to give a talk. I'm very glad to be here. Um, so, I'm maybe going to start with um, with a question, um, which is: Is it possible to launch a concerted program of economic and social modernization, also cultural modernization, without unleashing unintended consequences? Um, In other words, is it possible to keep control of the process? Uh, As scholars, we could examine this question by looking at a variety of contexts, such as the Soviet Union, post-war Europe, France and Germany in particular, um, or the uh, present-day Asian tigers, uh, India and China. Well, in many ways, my book is an exploration of this question using the case of socialist Yugoslavia. and these are just some visuals <laughs> to show you um, socialist Yugoslavia um, and particularly the um, the atmosphere of revolution in the aftermath of the Second World War when Tito's partisans took over um, the government. Um, this just says, um, long live the first of May 1948, and you see this idea of not just an economic revolution but a social revolution, a partnership between intellectuals, peasants, and workers. Um, And so you have this this idea of social economic uh, political renewal. And so what I try to do in my book is through planning to uh, to look at planning's dual mandates as a tool for modernization and for managing growth. Um, and focusing on its evolution over time, examining its first and second uh, post-war master plans. And the book ends up being about the rise and fall of modernist functionalist planning in Yugoslavia's capital um, as a program for spatial modernization. My argument essentially is that modernist functionalist planning, which I'll tell you more about in a second, embodied a particular idea of modernity, um, and it was compatible with a particular modernization project, but that you know it it sort of sowed the seeds of its own destruction uh, because it brought that that modernization project itself brought about a shift in ideas about modernity, um, and, and 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 as a result, um, urban planning itself had to change. Before I get into the details of the Yugoslav case. I I just want to situate designing Tito's Capital in the literature a little bit. Um, It seeks to make uh, a contribution to two key areas of scholarship, one of them being the history of state socialism, Um, for example, looking at urban planning as such, uh, looking at the forces that shaped urban planning under Mm -hmm. state socialism, there's a whole literature around that but also uh, using urban planning as a concrete example of state policy um, and therefore as a a window for looking at the interactions of different state actors and different social groups, um, looking at interactions between elite and masses and also to look in the specific Yugoslav context at the interaction of different jurisdictions, the federal, the republican, and local institutions, and also economic, social policy, and town planning. Um, And it was also very important to me to try and place this Yugoslav story, and so often Yugoslav scholars emphasize the exceptional nature of Yugoslavia, but I wanted to place it in a broader global context, and that's really the focus of my first chapter. Um, and the book also um, wants to contribute to our understanding of the history of modernism. There's an extensive literature already on the history of modernism which is primarily focused on architecture and on canonical figures in the developed capitalist West. So people like Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, Richard Neutra, Louis Kahn, etc. Well, I want to contribute to the growing literature on regional modernisms. In other words, what form did modernism take in individual, national, and regional contexts, uh, particularly in what might be considered peripheral sites? And also, I have an interest in expanding the discussion from architecture to urban planning as a, as a, an area of interest in its own right. Uh, Historians are always interested in sources so I'll say a couple things about those. Um, I used underutilized and sometimes never used before archives including city council, minutes, um, documents produced by the Town Planning Institute um, and um, reports relating to the Standing Conference of Yugoslav Cities which was an association of Yugoslav cities that would come together to discuss various problems. I also used unpublished reports um, which were produced by a variety of institutes that were interested in urban problems. I used the professional press, newspapers as well, published primary sources such as promotional literature on on the new master plan or on New Belgrade. And I also conducted a few interviews with planners, although one of the things I found extremely interesting is um, how uh, distorted planners' memories of this period were, um, particularly um, shaped by everything that happened to Yugoslavia in the 1990s, it, you know, the 1960s became a kind of a golden age for them, and uh, they don't, They, for example, planners could not seem to remember that there had been a problem with informal housing construction. that grew in the 1960s because it didn't conform to their idea of the 1960s as being an era of law and order to be contrasted with the, ni- the 1990s Milosevic era and every, all, all the proliferation of informality that happened at that time. So um, those interviews were more interesting as context really than as, um, as providing factual evidence.
1: Uh, you know, <coughs> anyone who's ever done research in archives in five places that says, there, go go look yourself for the documents that interest you there yeah. and there.
0: Yeah. I remember actually um, asking for photocopies of a document, and the archivist tore out the pages one by one and photocopied them as I stu- stood horrified watching him destroy <laughs> this document. So, yeah, different kind of... Yeah, and then I went and did research for my labor migrants in West Germany where everything was very proper and professional. It was uh-huh. really quite an interesting that, That's why that's in French, not German. Yeah, maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and this is just um, to provide a backdrop for my introductory comments. Tito looking at, um, at a plan for the rebuilding of a part of old Belgrade. Yeah. So, The questions that that I asked in my book is what informed town planning in Belgrade after the Second World War, and how did town planning change over the course of the 1950s and 1960s, um, influencing the Second Master Plan uh, of 1972? After the Second World War, the new socialist regime embraced modernist functionalist urban planning. So first I should say a few words about what modernist Functionalist urban planning is um, this school or approach to planning um, is rooted in the Athens Charter, which was the interwar planning manifesto um, that was um, that was developed by the uh, by Siam, the Congrès International d'Architecture Moderne, which was the international organization of modernist architects, the, the most important one. Um, and it, um, it, the actual Athens charter was published under Le Corbusier's name and in fact he did some heavy editing of the discussions around the charter and so it really bears his influence. Um, and the essential uh, elements of this manifesto were, were that cities, modern European cities were atrophied and diseased, they were built for. Um, for the medieval context, and were not compatible with the modern age. They needed to be destroyed and rebuilt for the for the modern technological age. Um, and some of the elements of what how the new modern European city should look included the separation, the functional segregation and separation of uh, four the four functions, the sort of four, activities, types of activities that were thought of as being part of urban life which were recreation, work, uh, habitation and the fourth one was circulation or transportation the ability to move back and forth between these different activities. The idea also that towers and slabs um, were the solution for building housing for the masses um, because they were cost effective, they had a very small footprint, um, they could employ modern uh, technology for cheap uh, construction and um, they were hygienic and provided access to sunlight and green space. Um, And in tandem with this, um, another uh, aspect of modernist functionalist planning was this idea of replacing the closed city block with an open block. I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit to show you what I mean. This would be a closed city block where construction takes place all along the perimeter. This is actually from the central part of Belgrade. And that inner part was supposed to be a courtyard but over the years because of the value of the land in Belgrade um, it was built up. And the idea with this, of course, from the perspective of people like Le Corbusier, is that there was no light, there was no circulation of air, this was not hygienic um, housing. So, um, eliminate that and replace it with, um, you know, buildings that are freely situated um, in green space. Also, separation of traffic types, so you don't want automobiles and pedestrians intersecting. Um, This is where the idea of building overpasses um, comes from. Um, Also, uh, vehicular traffic that is going across the city shouldn't intersect with local traffic, those kinds of um, idea of different scales of transportation. And then the last important point here is that this um, this was not a manifesto that proposed solutions for improving old European cities, it was a totalizing vision. So it presumed that you would actually destroy these cities and build something entirely new uh, in their place. Why is it that um, modernist functionalist planning came to dominate in Yugoslavia? Uh, Well, in large part, this is because the group of architects who came to prominence after the Second World War were modernist architects, and this has a lot to do with their social and political views that were in line with the, you know, the Communist Party, the Yugoslav Communist Party's project to um, to uh, renew society and provide better uh, living conditions for workers and create a more egalitarian society. So uh, it just happened that architects with uh, with this particular Um, Aesthetic and um, ideas about design are the ones who came to power. Tito himself apparently had no particular opinions about architecture and in fact his personal taste tended more towards historicism than towards modernism. But modernist functionalist planning fundamentally um, did mesh with the social goals and economic policies of the regime. So the regime viewed Yugoslavia as a poor rural country with an overwhelmingly agrarian economy. Um, Also, Belgrade had been devastated by the war and needed rebuilding on a large scale. And um, the the regime wanted to industrialize Yugoslavia on the model of the Soviet Union, Uh, so rapid industrialization sort of in line with Stalin's five-year plans and it wanted to turn a peasant nation into a nation of workers which implied both economic change and also modernizing the ways of thinking and of living of peasants who would now be coming and working in urban environments. Um, urban, the, the modernist functionalist planning really was well suited to this modernization project particularly since it emphasized rational use of resources Um, since it uh, emphasized collective use of space. So instead of, for example, having single-family homes, each one with their own gardens, instead you'd put workers in uh, towers and slabs and they would share a park, for example. Um, It also promised to improve the lives of the working man and civilizing the peasant. And uh, much like uh, Marxist ideology itself, it legitimized itself by uh, claim to being a scientific approach, scientific authority. Uh, this is the, you know, what the old backwards rundown, as far as they were concerned, city of Belgrade. Um, this is the type of construction that was ubiquitous in Belgrade, um, sort of single-story um, Balkan-type housing. Um, and again, this is... Um, you know, this is. These are some of the poor living conditions that they were trying to to do away. And the, the urban congestion, the um, the pedestrians and automobiles sharing the same space, etc. The chaos of the modern European city. <clears throat> New Belgrade provides a good illustration of how these ideas were implemented. New Belgrade was um, prior to the 1950 Master Plan. It was a a piece of marshland that separated (coughs) the city of Zemun, which you can see on the top left, and the city of Belgrade. Zemun, in fact, we call it a city. I think it would be more of a village. It was, you know, that's really literally the size of it. Um, And Zemun had historically been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and um, Belgrade had been part of the Ottoman Empire and later part of the Kingdom of Serbia. So um, creating a new city center um, between Zemun and Belgrade also had a kind of symbolic function of uniting the disparate halves of of Yugoslavia. Um, And it also reflected the fact that (laughs) the Yugoslav authorities were actually not in a position to tear down the old city of Belgrade. So instead of tearing it down, what they just did is is shift the city center to this this marshy piece of land, um, which required a good deal of infrastructural work because it was marshland and prone to flooding. They actually had to dredge much of the the surrounding riverbeds for sand and raise the level of the... um, The piece of land by several meters, um, which also gave them the opportunity to show mastery over nature. So, in all possible ways, this was um, a very symbolically powerful project. Um, You can see here the plan for the city of of New Belgrade. Um, And if it looks a lot like that other illustration you saw earlier, um, it's not a coincidence. Um, This was Um, Le Corbusier's model for a radiant city, and I'll just draw some parallels. Um, So as I had said in terms of how this fit with the Athens Charter model of planning, you have here functional segregation, so you have a business center, um, then you have, you know, a green belt, you have a railway station, so using modern technology to convey people um, hotels and embassies, housing over here, a green belt, factories, warehouses, and heavy industry. And you have a very orthogonal grill, uh, grid. Pardon me um, for automobile traffic. And I, you can't see it very well, but you have sort of the freestanding buildings in green space as well. Um, And New Belgrade in many ways replicated many of the ideas. One other idea here was that this could be a linear city that could be expanded infinitely in either direction. And again, you have this idea of completely rational use of space. Um, Here in New Belgrade, instead of having the business center, it was the highest instance of a government of, of Yugoslavia which was the Federal Executive Council, which makes sense given that it was a socialist state. Um, And then you had public buildings would be over here. You have the uh, the train link that conveys people back and forth. The orthogonal grid. uh, grid. You also have um, housing in these, although these three core blocks, the function of them or the use of them was constantly being reconsidered and ultimately To this day, not all of these three blocks have been realized, so, um, but these were going to be public buildings of importance over here, here you have housing, um, and here you were going to have factories, um, and this is a, a later addition, in fact, to the, to the plan. So you can see a lot of parallels between the two concepts. And I'll just show you a few more slides about New Belgrade. This shows you the aesthetic um, that was that was uh, the modernist aesthetic that was paired with the modernist functionalist planning. Um, you know, what jumps out at you here, probably how spread out it is. Also, the automobile is very much an American-style automobile. Um, so this was, you know, this was what Yugoslavs thought when they thought about what the city of the future would look like. Um, this is one of the first blocks to be built in New Belgrade um, and they used it as a kind of laboratory to test out different housing types um, and you can see the freestanding buildings in the green space And um, you know going from the larger scale to the smaller and smaller scale this is what the architecture of the buildings looked like and so you can see standardized and prefabricated um, aspects to this. Um, And it was associated with a modern way of living. So the apartments were quite small, but they were meant to work with smaller, modern furniture. Um, And, you know, there's all kinds of literature that's been done on other contexts about how the space in the apartments was divided according to very middle class sense of how people should use space. Also, um, supermarkets were brought in uh, and the idea being that people would use convenience foods and um, frozen foods and things of that of that sort. So, there's a whole project of bringing Yugoslav citizens into the modern age through the construction of New Belgrade. Um, actually, before I go to this, I'll just say a few more things about New Belgrade. New Belgrade is also interesting because um, it's it's a good site for examining how shi- how shifts in policy led to sh- led to shifts in planning. Um, so even before modernist functionalist planning was eventually abandoned, um, there are a number of policy shifts that urban planners had to adopt uh, adapt to. One of them was self management. Actually, let me move us back a couple of slides here. Um, one of them was self management, which um, which was the ideological basis for decentralizing Yugoslavia um, so so that most government took place at the Republican and local levels. As a result of that, uh, New Belgrade's function as the capital of the nation didn't really make sense anymore, right? Um, This is a decentralized state what exactly was New Belgrade supposed to represent, right? It couldn't have all these public buildings in the center core. Uh, What public buildings? These functions were supposed to be decentralized. And so um, the city of Belgrade's planners had to sit down and come up with a new concept for New Belgrade. Thankfully, very little had been built, so it's not like they had to reuse these buildings. But they had to decide what exactly uh, it was going to mean. And what they arrived at was the notion that New Belgrade would now become um, a shining showcase of how Yugoslavia was able to provide a superior standard of living to its workers. So it kept its ideological and representational function, but it was shifted away from, you know, a representation of the political or governmental process to basically, you um, Uh, illustrating the Yugoslav dream to Yugoslavia's population. Um, In case you're interested, in prior versions of this talk, I didn't really talk much about New Belgrade beyond this, but people kept asking questions, so I'll give you a little bit more (laughs) detail on New Belgrade. New Belgrade was really supposed to, uh, as I say, showcase this this new idea of urban living that modernism proposed, including the fact that um, each one of these blocks was supposed to be a self-contained neighborhood unit, complete with housing, but also all the services and retail that you could need, a community center, um, any, you know, any kind of amenities that a person would need on a day-to-day basis should be located within their block, and this is a model that I'm sure you've heard of in many other contexts. Ultimately, though, because of the endemic housing shortage and the way in which um, Yugoslav economic planning and the uh, the Yugoslav economic system in general functioned, um, I would say that the vast majority of all construction ended up just being housing, so very few of these amenities were ever built, and, um, and so, even though New Belgrade was in the public eye as the, you know, the, the, the finest possible example of modernist planning in Belgrade, um, it, it became very embarrassing, it became seen as a kind of a dormitory community where people had to cross over into Old Belgrade in order to do anything, um, be it grocery shopping, um, you know, any kind of cultural activity, um, any health needs. Um, Schools were operating on a three-shift system, so in in any given day, three different cohorts of students would be using them. Um, So New Belgrade lost a bit of its shine from that perspective. The other thing that became quite contentious is the fact that, uh, by and large, Rather than being a worker's paradise, it uh, developed into a home for the managerial elite of Yugoslavia. Again, due to this context of housing shortage, who gets the housing? It's the people that the enterprises want to attract and keep. And also large parts of New Belgrade were inhabited by uh, families um, whose spouses worked in the Yugoslav National Army. And so it it definitely became a very sort of middle class um, and privileged, you know, red bourgeoisie um, city rather than, than a worker's paradise. And there's more that I could say, but maybe if we have time during questions. Um, and finally, just to emphasize that while New Belgrade was, uh, was this kind of special case in every single block was uh, designed by competition at the federal level, um, the principles that were used to design New Belgrade were put in action everywhere around the city of Belgrade. So these are some uh, different new developments that were built on the periphery of Belgrade and you can see that many of the same elements are present there. Over the course of the 1950s and 1960s, modernist functionalist planning was gradually abandoned. Um, And here we can see the impact of the unintended consequences of the modernization project. So what were the reasons for this shift in Belgrade? Well, one dimension is definitely um, that uh, sort of turning against the ideas of modernist functionalist planning that are part of a global trend of harsh critique of the new modernist settlements. Um, And this critique was coming from a number of quarters, both globally and within Yugoslavia. You have social critics and social scientists in particular uh, and journalists who are taking part in this attack. Um, Globally, of course, Jane Jacobs is associated with this assault on uh, modernist planning. Um, There are other examples coming out of Germany like Die gemodete Stadt and this was written I believe by some psychologists, if I'm not mistaken, or sociologists who examined people's relationship to the city and found that people were able to, to, to... to create uh, a sense of self and a sense of community much more easily in older urban uh, neighborhoods than in these soulless, supposedly soulless, modernist neighborhoods. Um, In France you have uh, Christiane Rochefort, for example, um, writing Les Petits Enfants du Siècle in which she depicts these settlements as as places so vacuous and boring that uh, young People engage in delinquency and uh, women become promiscuous because they have nothing else to do all day. So there's a general sense in which rather than, you know, creating modern happy citizens, um, the modernist functionalist developments in fact are creating board um, and um, uh, populations of bored people who feel isolated and are engaging in criminal activity, you know, that social, socially dysfunctional places. Um, and I'd like to point out that urban designers themselves, having now had a chance to, to build these settlements, um, are themselves becoming quite critical of what they've built. Um, although much of the blame that they place is not on the design but on the mechanisms for implementing it, so pointing out for example how the mechanisms for financing construction have resulted in uh, distortions, you know, uh, for example apartment buildings that were supposed to have shops on the ground floor well, there was no one willing to invest in the shops, but there was a need for housing, so those shops were replaced with housing. So they don't want to take responsibility entirely. They want to uh, highlight how their ideas have been uh, corrupted and distorted. But um, they also become, uh, they they also recognize that somehow these new settlements, while they satisfy all kinds of um, aspirations for, access to sunlight and air and green space, that they've somehow, um, they've forgotten something very crucial to the built environment which is the creation, creating intimate spaces where people can gather and create a sense of community. And uh, this is, you know, let's contrast this, this is New Belgrade to, um, to this kind of, um, this kind of space that comes out of Old Belgrade. Um, and you know, what's written under this picture and this too is Belgrade, low houses, um, pitched roofs with little courtyards in the middle. This is where neighbors, um, live as one family. So you know, we're now looking to this, this old built inheritance which had previously been considered so, um, so, um, outdated and needing to be, uh, demolished as a model for creating a sense of community. There's also a gradual shift in economic policy from central planning to market socialism, so this is actually quite early on. Uh, But there's an increasing push towards towards the market in Yugoslavia over time. And the market reforms that are launched in the mid-1960s are really promoting the idea of a consumer-driven economy. And this is particularly attractive to the state because um, the state is not able to cope with the, uh, the huge urbanization that is occurring. And its not it does not seem to be able to foot the bill for all the extra housing construction that is needed. And the authorities find it very appealing to shift the, ho- the cost of housing onto consumers. Initially, the, this, uh, this new cons- consumer-driven model uh, seems quite compatible with the construction industry, which uh, now begins to market the housing that it's building in these, modern, these modernist settlements to a general population. You find all kinds of marketing brochures highlighting apartments with very sophisticated people milling about and enjoying their lives in them. Um, but ultimately, the cost of housing on this, you know, that was put on the market was much too expensive for the majority of the people who needed housing. And you get the, a problem emerging with illegal construction, which seems to um, to run in parallel with, although it's not exactly the same thing, with increasing demand for single-family housing. So part of that demand for single-family housing is definitely coming from people who can't afford these apartments. But I would also argue that this modernization program, which really um, showcased you know, this Yugoslav dream of modern living in in a sort of middle class luxury um, and access at the same time to cultural products coming from the United States means that this growing middle class is increasingly um, interested in living the way Americans do in single family homes with gardens and automobiles. And since the construction industry doesn't seem to be able to provide housing for all these people, the state is increasingly willing to turn towards the single family housing as a model. Um, This is just an illustration here of the illegal construction that I uh, mentioned here. It emerges in the 1960s and originally is uh, seen as a consequence of problems in the construction sector and it's also originally framed as a peasant invasion. Oh, it's all these peasants coming in from the countryside that are reproducing their rural ways of living in the city. Um, So urban planners are very, very hostile to this idea of shifting towards single-family housing and initially, in fact, the, the, the city of Belgrade really focuses on trying to crack down on this, so there's, you know, a real emphasis on coercion. Um, ultimately, though, planners are instructed by the highest levels, by the federal, in fact, um, uh, by by the, the federation, to start including single-family housing as part of their planning. And, uh, for example, in 1967, Um, or sorry, in 1964 um, they are instructed that 20% of all new housing construction in Belgrade should be of the single family housing type and in fact that that much of this housing is not going to be built by the construction sector, it's going to be built by those people who are building illegally. You just need to find legal channels to co-opt that construction so this is coming on from uh, the highest levels of of government. I'll just move back a sec. I moved forward too quickly. Um, That's a distracting graphic. And I just want to emphasize so that you have this kind of, these two sort of tandem tracks um, of people desperate for housing and building housing uh, illegally and the growing idea that people should have the right to live in the kind of housing that they desire and that is being also promoted um, through the self-managed, self-management ideology, the sense that, um, you know, that everyone should have, that this is a sort of a human right, the right to choice. Right. Finally. Uh, The third thing that I discuss in my book is the fact that town planners have been, as you can see from my discussion, increasingly marginalized in discussions about the future growth of Belgrade, and they're trying to uh, reassert their position as experts, and um, when an opportunity comes up, they seize it. Um, to redefine basically what scientific planning means. This old idea, this Athens charter idea of scientific planning has been discredited. Um, What what is it that they they seize on in order to reassert their authority? Well, it's the rise of systems planning and cybernetics, which they become aware of as a result of um, an American Yugoslav project in regional planning that is promoted by... um, uh, by the Ford Foundation and the US Department of State um, and it's kind of a unique program that uh, one of the I think the only program that um, is not hosted by um, a an institution of higher learning but by um, an actual uh, by a, by an institute that is actually functions as a private institution basically and um, this American Yugoslav project begins uh, is founded on the idea of a kind of an um, egalitarian model whereby it's not that uh, U.S. specialists are bringing in their ideas and implementing them in Yugoslavia, but it's bringing together urban planning theorists and professionals from both countries to sort of problem solve together, and they, they, they produce an initial um, land use transportation plan for the city of Ljubljana, which the Belgrade Town Planning Institutes finds out about and enters in discussion uh, with this uh, this project, they end up forming a partnership with Wayne State University in Detroit in order to, um, to learn, yes, of course, Detroit is always the model you think of <laughs> when you think of great... Urban planning, um, but it, Wayne State is the one of the leaders at the time in using, um, you know, computers in order in order to do forecasting and planning and to do these kinds of land use transportation plans. As a result of that, they hire um, they hire three consultants from Wayne State University who come to Belgrade and basically train a group from the Town Planning Institu- Institute in how to do this type of planning. Now if you actually look at what happens, it's very interesting. Um, the consultants come to realize that given the amount of information that they can actually get from the City of Belgrade, they're not actually able to do this kind of planning. The information is not of sufficient quality or they don't have enough of it in order to, to do proper forecasting and proper planning. Uh, modeling, pardon me. So they end up using it rather as a kind of a pedagogical exercise and they modify the methodology quite a bit. It's really just intended to give the Town Planning Institute a sense of how this kind of planning works. But the Town Planning Institute um, adopts the results of this exercise as its master plan and the claims that are made about it in the actual publication talking about the master plan. Are that this is a, an exercise in scientific planning. So they they completely um, um, they they do not disclose any of the limitations of the methodology that they've just used. In any sake uh, in any case, pardon me. The result is uh, is completely different than what we had uh, in the 1950 master plan. Gone is the concern with creating compact urban center. Instead, you have um, uh, a archipelago concept. They called it an archipelago concept. And uh, it's not possible to read the legend. Unfortunately, this is the only version of this of this illustration that I have. But uh, the lighter the color, the, the lower the density. And the yellow re- refers to essentially the kind of density you get with single family housing. And so you can see how In the 1972 master plan, there's there's not just an inclusion, but an embracing of of much lower density types of housing construction. And all of this was supposed to be connected by um, an LRT system, which due to the fact that the Yugoslav economy tanks in the 1970s is never actually realized, but um, you get the sense of of how different um, the vision for the further development of Belgrade is. So I just want to highlight that although there are differences, there are also some interesting continuities. There's a continued preoccupation with uncontrolled growth, except now there's a sense in which you cannot plan the way the city grows. The only thing you can do is try to manage that growth. Um, There's also a continued discourse of scientific planning um, and there is also continued construction of modernist settlements like the ones that I've talked to you about but now they're alongside um, substantial single family housing construction as well as informal housing which continued to bloom uh, during this period. But the policy shifts towards the consumer driven economy and towards decentralization fundamentally had eroded the hegemony of the Athens charter model and led to the adoption of other methodologies and other approaches. So now I'll say a couple of things in conclusion. Um, Sort of stepping back and looking at the the broader story of the evolution of planning in Yugoslavia. um, I think it's interesting that it... Well, first of all, it reflects the confluence of many things, Uh, the political, the economic, and spatial policy. It also reflects things happening locally, at the national level, and at the global level. And the 1950 Master Plan had been inspired by a certain idea of modernity and by a certain modernization strategy. As these changed, so too planning had to change. Returning to the broader question I asked at the beginning, In Yugoslavia, planners had hoped to control the process of social and economic modernization, and indeed, at least from the perspective of the late 1940s, it seemed possible. Here was a state committed to the rational use of resources and to modernizing and civilizing lifestyles. Um, And also, you know, there was a way in which this planning really seemed to embody socialist values, Um, although today we might call it sustainable growth, living within your means. Although the new political context seemed to give more power to planners, um, which meant both in both in the sense of an economic planning system that provided much greater control and also political support, the numerous consequences of modernization really did derail their best laid plans. Um, and these included things such as, um, you know, very um, rapid urbanization, scarcity which included shortages of resources and also which provoked um, a policy shift. Uh, Migration, changing ideas of modernity, and there are many other uh, elements to this as well. And planners continued to articulate a vision in which uh, they were the sole defenders of the public good but in, the, in a context of scarce resources in which the state was rolling back its <laughs> participation in the housing provision and seeking to offload it onto consumers, they were increasingly talking to themselves. As a side note, I think it's interesting to note that they were effectively subject to the same kinds of pressures as in capitalist societies, limited resources, pressure from local politicians, pressure by we might call them developers in the West, they were called investors there to maximize the uh, the return on investments, popular pressure for single family housing, and it leads to an intriguing question, which I'll leave you with, of what really distinguishes this socialist city from a capitalist one. Thank you very much.
1: Time for questions, comments. Um what, yeah, go ahead and then we'll Chris.
2: I was just wondering um if during the fifties and sixties there was any discussion at that time of having a, a subway underground versus
3: the the trams that are used to be. Right
0: yes, for this nineteen seventy-two master plan there is a very um lively debate as to which of the two would be the best uh, model for, and it actually continues. Ideas for an LRT are revived um, in in the 1980s, and so it gets discussed again. So yeah, they're, they're very lively debates. I don't know exactly the details of that, but... Well, they built one um, one station. There's one station that gets built, <laughs> which was supposed to be a point of intersection between the suburban railway lines and um, and the more local LRT. And um, it's actually a very grandiose station. Um, if you visit it, it's By, kind of it's exactly. Um, and that is the extent of what is built. It's Just that that one station. So it's quite tragic, but it's it's actually. Um, People keep coming back to that question and wanting to re-examine it and reconsider, you know, because Belgrade has grown quite a lot, um, and and there are a lot of proponents for continuing with that with that project.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, to pick up with your conclusion, what's the difference between a capitalist city and a socialist city? Uh, tell me about uh, land ownership. What it was in 1940 mm. uh, and what it is here. Who owns? property right and um, on land use um, mm-hmm. uh, what are the uh, levels of government that makes a, the decision municipal the public federal
0: okay so um, the land was nationalized after the and second World
2: is that nationalized to whom to what to what well, that's what? a very
0: interesting question um, what the answer to that question is, who owns it exactly, what level of government owns it. Um, I suppose it was the municipality if I think through with how then the land, because it's the municipality that then makes decisions about what happens to the land. Um, Although I would have to double check that. But um, people retain what's called the right of use. So if you have a house on the municipal territory, um, you retain ownership of that house and the right of use to that land which you can pass to your direct descendants, essentially. Um, and the legislation o- over that changes over time as well. It becomes more flexible in terms of allowing people to transfer right of use, so, which effectively creates a real estate market. Um, and then, th- can you remind me the second part of your question, which was about...
2: Well, okay, so let's just say, hypothetically, it's the... Um, Municipal government. Well, who is that? Is that the, the League of Communists, Yugoslavia? Is that the?
0: Uh, no, no. So there's they're kind of parallel institutions. You have um, the republican level communist parties, and then it goes down the chain of command. But then then there's also this the, uh, the the government and the state institutions, which run parallel and are controlled by the communists, but they are effectively separate institutions, so it's the municipality of Belgrade, the city of Belgrade. One of the interesting things, too, is that um, only the land inside the municipality's boundaries is nationalized. The land outside of the municipality continues to belong to the, well, what were originally peasants that inhabited that land, but obviously as the city grows, a whole speculative market grows around that, that. And that's where a lot of the illegal construction takes place is people buying land from peasants and building, you know, however they wanted without consulting the municipality.
1: Yeah, yeah and then, then we'll go down here. Go ahead. All right, thank you
3: for the talk. Um, so I study some similar things in the case of Russia, mm-hmm. Russia. Um, so I interested in could, could, that, you be a, could you be a little louder, in please? The, um, so on one hand, the totalizing the vision you mm-hmm. talked about. Um, did they ever have moments that they, the planners, have moments of stepping back from that, mm. of saying instead of looking at the city, all of it, all at once, all mm-hmm. the systems, mm-hmm. to to say we will plan this but not this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my other question, I guess, is about the relationship to the Soviet model. You mm-hmm. said that they. Aspired to that model of industrialization. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of planning, when they took up the sort of Athens charter model or the that used, did they see those as historical, even though it's a modernizing project? Did, did they learn from the project to reconstruct Moscow next door? Mm-hmm. Like, was right. there a relationship to that as history or a case study? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or was it more this is the, the latest and greatest sort of best practice?
0: Yeah, okay. So I'll start with your second question, um, which is to say, are they looking at what's going on in Moscow? Well, there's there's the famous break between Tito and Stalin in 1948. And so there's really only a three-year window when they're looking at Moscow or they're looking at the Soviet model at all. And in fact, this is before the consolidation has really even occurred in Eastern Europe. Um, and on top of that, you have these are modernist architects who are not, you know, who are not really looking east in the first place. Uh, ever since you know the Soviet Union had broken with modernism in the 1930s, and so um, really there's very little reference at all to what was done in the Soviet Union. Uh, the only thing that remains under Tito is this vision of state-led industrialization is being essential, although obviously after the break with, um, with the Soviet Union they rethink how to do that and they increasingly work towards a market, you know, a, a mixed model that incorporates significant market elements towards it, so. Now in terms of, that's a very interesting question about whether there are moments where they step away from this totalizing vision to look at the smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, And there's two ways to look at that. Okay, the the way I would go about addressing this question is you end up with different kinds of planners at the Town Planning Institute. You have the planners who do the large-scale planning, and then you have the planners who are a totally different group of people who have to deal with the nitty-gritty on the ground of how particular parts of Belgrade are gonna be developed. And um, in the old city, they cannot, you know, from the very beginning, they, um, they, they say we are not going to be able to destroy this. And so all those planners who are working on the old city of Belgrade are constantly forced to deal with the city as it already exists. Um, but these are different planners than the ones who are planning New Belgrade. Um, in terms of the, there's another way to approach this, which is to look at the biographies of particular planners. And I can think of one planner in particular who begins by really uh, adopting this tabula rasa way of seeing things all the time. And uh, you can read her various, you know, she's published a variety of articles over the years. And at the very beginning she, uh, you know, she's writing articles about how she, she's looking at this collection of huts that purports to be a village and all she can see is an opportunity to tear that down and build something modern. And about 15 years later you're reading her writings and she's reflecting on how you know, modernist settlements uh, have not succeeded in creating what she calls ambient or a kind of uh, an atmosphere, a sense of place basically. And you you can tell that there's been an evolution from that initial uh, contempt for these old build forms. And so I think in that sense there is a gradual appreciation for sense of place and you know she writes about what sense of place means and a lot does have to do with the connection to the past and a connection to, to the specific site. And so I think there is that kind of evolution that happens.
1: Um, this kind of goes back to the Tito-Stalin uh, split um, that we were already discussing. I, I was going to ask if there were, so you had Soviet specialists up until 1948 and then they pulled out of the country, where then do the Yugoslavs turn for that kind of technical expertise that had been mm. previously provided by the Soviets, Are they, do they look towards Western Europe or do they kind of you know start to ruin their own or
0: Um, They definitely look, um, well, okay, so they have this kind of, you know, in terms of what foundational texts they look to, they look towards the modernists. Uh, In those initial years, they do not have much access to the West until the early 1960s when the border regime gets completely liberalized. As a point of, uh, you know, reference, The period, the first half of the 1950s anyway, there's not a whole lot of construction going on because um, of the tensions relating to the Tito's Down split. It's really only in the second half of the 50s that they began building. They initially used very primitive techniques, like it's the old, you know, brick and mortar. By the 1960s, they're both uh, actively engaged with Western technologies and networks of expertise and developing their own systems. Which they begin to market, and in fact, Yugoslav engineering firms—firms, beca- beca- uh, pardon me—become very active in the non-aligned mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. Uh, proposing all kinds of technological solutions and yeah, designs.
1: As, as a real quick follow-up, um, it's in the you say it's in the second half of the 50s that they begin uh, when they can really start. Is there any engagement with like say Novohuta Huta in, in Poland? Is a very similar.
0: You know, whenever, it's very interesting, whenever they refer to the Soviet Union or the satellite states, it's always with, to point out something that's not right, with derision, to, to showcase how their version of socialism is so superior. Um, even after you know even after the restoration of good relations with the Soviet Union you don't see very much reference and even though the Soviet Union itself is now engaging in many of the same approaches you don't see any at least not not in the journals not in the places that I've looked any engagement yeah Thanks. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious. Um, they had a huge emphasis in the 50s on green space and like open spaces like that. How much of that was encroached on by like the 70s and so like housing shortages, mm-hmm. like uh, making green space kind of mm-hmm. seem wasted or so? How did like, they use the green space? Not
0: in Yugoslavia. Not until um, not until the Milosevic years. What you see then is a lot of illegal encroachment on this space, particularly by kiosks and sort of small built environments. And then after, um, you know, after the fall of Milosevic and the kind of normalization of Serbia, um, New Belgrade becomes a prime site for developing uh, shopping malls and retail. So in the last 20 years, there's been huge... Uh, development on this green space and a shrinking of this green space. But I mean, I think this was, you know, this is one of the things that made socialist cities socialist is that there was this real value placed on public space that that didn't sort of have to, it didn't have to, nobody had to defend it. Um, And, you know, you can call that a distortion of land value or you can call it whatever you like, but you do get, I think, a lot more of this type of space uh, in socialist cities.
3: Did they ever complete the single-family housing, and what did that eventually
0: look like? Yeah, I don't have. Unfortunately, it seems like, from a historical perspective, um, people didn't seem to think it was important to document this kind of vernacular architecture. So, uh, if I wanted to collect more photos, I'd have to really start getting creative. But um, so. Just to explain how these were built, um, essentially in order... So people would throw up the four walls very quickly because there was a law that said that if there were four walls, then you had to be compensated if they were to tear it down. And some people have speculated that in fact they only built the four walls in order to get that particular ticket into an apartment building. Um, And then they would sort of progressively finish it over time. Um, and they would also add stories depending on the needs of the family, and so you end up with very kind of ele- eclectic what's housing the, the style. The
3: community like I mean was it like near the school and people, those sorts of things or how did that? Happen? In, in in those neighborhoods? Yeah. What was that What was that vision
0: like when they were starting? Well, are so you're talking about the illegal construction or how this how the state single,
3: when it's, the, single, Family
0: housing, or whatever the legal construction right. was. Right. So you have, uh, this is the thing: you have the sort of the settlements that are sprouting up illegally, and those are willy-nilly, and um, there are there are no amenities in these places, and they're illegally tapping onto the the uh, the water supply and the sewage and the electricity, uh, and so that's how they're getting access to that kind of u- those utilities. There's no schools. The roads are really kind of uh, arbitrary. There's no sidewalks, that sort of thing. You get then you get the the single-family housing settlements that are planned by the town planning office, in spite of its better judgment, and those really correspond to our Western ideas of what they should look like. There, you know, there's a mix of townhomes and single-family homes and all the usual amenities, although there's an interesting discussion that stems from the fact that it's meant, they're they're directed, they're meant to be for these self-builders who are people who by definition have very low incomes and so there's this whole discussion over well how do we build these to make them affordable for those people? Um, Probably we're going to have to skip out on the sewage hookup and just have them (laughs) use septic (laughs) tanks and have gravel roads. And then the, you know, so there's this whole discussion around that with the planners saying, yes, but in, you know, in 20 years, you're going to regret those decisions. You know, this is going to have to be retrofitted as we get to be a wealthier society. Um, And, and in the end, they end up building a whole variety of sort of income level developments, uh, which sell very poorly because ultimately the people who are building their homes can't actually afford the cost of these, these sites, yeah.
4: This is not a question, but I have something of the private land ownership in the... There used to be, even after the Second World War, in the center of Belgrade, or in the areas which are not what you described out of the mm-hmm. city of Belgrade, private uh, uh, small houses with plots around them, mm-hmm. and so on, mm-hmm. that remained in the private ownership. Uh, and to this day, there are some. Now, what happened then if the city uh, needed to build something which was deemed more important, mm-hmm. like uh, a supermarket or a big building or something like that, they used the right of eminent domain mm-hmm. actually to buy them out,
2: mm-hmm.
4: and buy them out pretty cheaply. In other words, they would give them, in return, an apartment or maybe two smaller apartments of a similar value, what they deemed mm-hmm. satisfy the same needs. They would build a building which was much, much more valuable. In other words, they would be uh, not reimbursed not for the full value. Mm-hmm. So this is how it worked, and I'm not sure exactly who owned it. I think it was like uh, I think it was like the county, but it was socialism, and everyone just paid their, you know, like rent, and only later in 1980s, people living in these apartments they could actually buy them out and become private ownerships for their Mm -hmm. own Mm flats.
0: At a time of huge inflation as well, so...
4: Right. So some people, most people paid much less than the value of these apartments, but some paid much more than the others because if you paid like six months later, Mm -hmm. you would pay one tenth of what people who wanted to pay further. And now there is still an issue because people whose property was confiscated after the Second World War, War, they have the right of restitution and there is a big delay because the government or whoever owns these things basically would need to, they're waiting essentially for many people to die out (laughs) so that they would have to pay out less, you know.
0: Yes, no, thank you.
1: If there are no other questions, Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a question. Mm -hmm. And so you showed these pictures of the boulevard and new blocks. Mm -hmm. And we've, those of us who have been in Eastern Europe or in the Soviet Union have seen Mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. My question is about the quality. Mm -hmm. Because in Romania, in Bucharest, in the early 70s, when I was living there, these new blocks had nets built into the entryways, and the reason was that as soon as the building was finished, bricks would start falling off. And so, so that people right. walking in wouldn't get hurt, they would right. put these. So, it was not a very good quality. Right. But what was the quality like here? Because you can build yeah. ugly buildings like that yeah. with better quality.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, this is an interesting question. It really depends on the buildings because. Um, some of some of the so I would say in general, probably there were more construction flaws than you would find say in I don't know the grand, the grand ensemble around Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, but some some of the flaws also had to do with the, the um, you know the, the, these were these were systems, prefabricated systems that maybe, for example, let moisture in or so, you know, there, there are different kinds of flaws that came. Some of them were not poor workmanship. They just had to do with the way in which the the system functioned and mm-hmm. it, it had certain flaws. I haven't really, I, I know that they were talking about it at the time. So mm-hmm. it was an issue of concern. And also some of it had to do with the training of the people who were doing the construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can also tell you that in the present day, there are a lot of issues around these buildings that are now getting old and that are, that are not aging well um, and, and how specifically to deal with these problems given the the way in which the units were privatized individually and there's no sort of good way of dealing with the building as a whole.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Beyond that I can't I don't know how it would compare, say, to Romania. I have never seen any nuts hanging over doors though. So <laughs> okay.
4: I right. was say my fault that down but it's very rare I, I would say in general it's good
1: it uh-huh. hasn't been
4: maintained well but it's good oh, okay um, I just
1: have one question uh, I'd like to take us a little bit out of Belgrade if I can um, you talked a lot about, about novi Belgrade and and the vision and the importance of the architecture it wasn't just housing people it was mm-hmm. it was you know developing a, a vision of the future mm-hmm. I'm curious to what degree was this were there attempts to realize Similar vision elsewhere in the former Yugoslavia, especially in the former republics. Right. Um, the, the it may have been one 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 country, but it was still already famously sort of yeah.
0: divided, and, yeah. and
1: republics had different.
0: It really hostages. it really depends on where you go. Um. It's okay. In. In Ljubljana, for example, there's nothing on this scale okay. is happening, and I have a friend who works on Ljubljana, and they, they you know, the, the sort of Slovene interpretation of socialism is a little bit different, and there's a Slovene, the, the way in which they relate to the built environment is very different. And I've, I've seen examples of this even in discussions on single-family housing with planners from Belgrade you know, making these very black and white statements about what's good and bad uh, versus, and and adopting also a very sort of, distrustful attitude towards the user. Like the, we can't pass, these people are backwards, we have to civilize them, not listen to them, versus the Slovene planners that are talking about, you know, if we want this to be successful, we need input from the users and we have to do this job of education. So there's, there's like, there's a very different culture around uh, planning already. Um, I can tell you though that in places like Zagreb, there's Novi Zagreb, which in many ways looks very similar to Novi Belgrade, you know, I could plop you down in either one, you wouldn't be sure whether you were in in the one or the other. Um, So and in Skopje, of course, after the earthquake, um, they have an international competition to rebuild Skopje and they end up... um, hiring a world famous architect and building it in a very, kind of a brutalist, concrete architectural style. Um, But Skopje is kind of a special case. I mean, one of the things that I say in my book is that really, this is not intended to be generalized for all of Yugoslavia and in fact we need more people to examine these different local contexts and let us know to what extent this this is the norm or to what extent it's idiosyncratic just because it was the capital
1: okay. yeah you. oh we go
0: have
1: one last question
2: i imagine that there was huge pressure put on the city of belgrade during the time of the wars of refugees flowing in um, is there are there people or institutions in place to deal with the pressures of new refugee influxes which might be coming Mm. or even left over from the time of the the people displaced by the wars of the 90s?
0: So this is a good question. I'm not sure how well placed I am to answer it. I can tell you that when I was was doing my field work, um, there were still a lot of refugees from Kosovo. And I would say that they were not actually dealt with very effectively. They were ghettoized and looked down on by the rest of Belgrade citizens. So this is how they treated their, you know, people of the same ethnic, you know, or nationality. Um, On the other hand, I think that people, that, that a lot of people who live in Belgrade today have the experience either of being a refugee or of having had family members who are refugees at some point in time. So there's there's a higher degree, I think, of sympathy for refugees than you might find, say, in Slovenia and certainly in Hungary where that memory, I guess, the refugees all left Hungary and went, went abroad. <laughs> um, But from an institutional perspective, uh, you know, really I think it's just the the NGOs that really uh, are the most active in trying to help the refugees and really we're talking about things like providing sandwiches and warm clothing and certainly not anything with a longer term perspective. That would be my very uninformed response. Perhaps you know more about this.
4: well, I'm not uh, knowledgeable about this, but I just said that uh, Serbia is the poorest mm-hmm. European country now. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Yugoslavia in socialist time was somewhere the best livelihood and best standard mm-hmm. of living of all socialist countries, sort of almost like Italy, the way I imagine. So, right now we are sort of below Albania in Serbia. So, it is the country, in spite of all of its uh, internal problems, it, it just it's, it's not really very position to cope well. Mm-hmm. No. With, yeah. Even with the sovereign refugees. So mm-hmm. Kosovo refugees have been dealt with well, mm-hmm. and they're, for the most part, Serbs. It's not because other Serbs really dislike them or don't care for them, that it's mm-hmm. just a limit how much a poor country can cope with this. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, thank you. For those who would like to, I, I know I'm going to buy one. There's some of Bridget's book out here that you'll sign, so.
0: And they're affordable. (laughs) Twenty-something dollars, last (coughs) I checked, yeah. (laughs) So thank you for
1: coming.